Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Seboeth. You have lived on earth in luxury and have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And Father, we ask that as a compassionate, merciful, good God and wonderful Savior and Lord to us, that you would just help us now to give to you continual worship as we submit our hearts our soul, our mind, our spirit to what the truth of your living and powerful word would want to say to each one of us. God, we believe that you want to speak to us and certainly we know that we need to hear from you. So help us now. Give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church, to this particular section of your word. We ask you would bless your word to our hearts this morning and speak to us by your spirit's ministry in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, I think you can tell when you have a really good friend because they tend to kind of do two things in your life. First of all, they're not afraid to confront you when you're wrong and to tell you the truth in regards to sometimes what you need to hear. And by the same token, they also tend to be the same individuals who are there to comfort you, maybe when you're suffering or to help you in the midst of a struggle with words of consolation. And in that way, I want to say that I found, I hope you've discovered, that the Bible is a really great friend. Because I find that when I read the Word of God, it does those same two things in my life. That as I read the Word of God, just like a good friend, the Scripture, God's voice through the Spirit at times will confront me where I'm wrong and challenge me if there's error in my life. And by the same token, God's word is a wonderful source of comfort so often to help us when we're suffering or to speak words of encouragement to us in our times of struggle or difficulty. And we see that very thing going on in our passage this morning. There's some confronting of error and there's some comfort regarding suffering and struggling. This section, almost important to think about for a moment before we begin to unpack the verses together. Basically, what we have going on here is this. James is addressing a problem or an injustice that was happening in the society in the day in which he was writing to these believers. And the injustice, the problem that was happening, really was taking place between the two basic classes 
of people in that day. The, an idea of a middle class wasn't really something that existed in that ancient culture. There were typically two classes of people in the ancient world. You usually had the super wealthy or the rich who were typically the landowners and the property holders and they controlled the majority of the money and used also their power and influence to in a lot of ways at times manipulate and control what happened among the society as well. And then the other class was typically what we could call in many ways the working poor. Uh, those who worked and they worked hard but yet they despite their work and somewhat lived in a more impoverished condition they labored hard in the fields and the properties of the rich and received daily wages just to exist and get by day by day and many of the ungodly rich obviously not being in a relationship with the Lord we can tell from the text had no regard for God and so they had no regard for people they didn't care about people and the way that they treated them. They just usually wanted to greedily enrich themselves and so they would oppress and they would mistreat the poor working class who served them in their fields, many of whom, most in this day that James is writing, many of the believers were more a part of that working poor in that day in the ancient culture in the early church. So many of the believers who James tries to encourage in the second half of our passage were these day laborers undergoing suffering and mistreatment and oppression by the rich landowners and were undergoing struggles and feeling rather disheartened so James tries to encourage them in this passage in fact back in chapter 2 James even kind of alluded to this a little bit when he was writing to the believers telling them not to show favoritism to the rich or the wealthy person who might wander into their assembly meeting on occasion. If you remember back in chapter 2, James had mentioned there regarding the rich, he said, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? That is, they take advantage of you and use their power to uh, sort of uh, capitalize on your misfortune. And he said as well regarding the rich, do they also not blaspheme that noble name by which you're called? So he was saying, why would you show special favoritism and cater to someone just because they're wealthy when they're one of the greatest enemies of the Lord Jesus who you love and often mock and blaspheme the name of the Lord. So what James is going to do here in verses 1 through 6 he basically is rebuking or he's confronting the error, the wrongdoing of the ungodly rich and then in verses 7 through 11 he then offers encouragement and counsel to the suffering believer undergoing those mistreatments. So look with me in verse 1 as we begin to look at this he says first of all come now you rich weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you your riches are corrupted your garments are moth-eaten your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire he says you have heaped up treasure in the last days so James here is addressing, as I said, sort of the self-indulgent, cruel, rich person who very clearly, it seems from our text here, it appears by their actions that these are not believers. These are not Christians. 
These were individuals who it seems may have periodically attended the assembly meetings of the believers, whether they were just trying to keep a status in the culture or maybe a pulse on what people in the community were doing, or maybe they just liked at times the additional attention. They would at times, it seems, frequent or gather with the people of God, but we can tell from looking at this that their hearts were completely dull spiritually. Uh, They had no love for God or love for people, uh, despite the fact that they may have attended a gathering of God's people. They loved their wealth as their God. And because they loved their wealth as their God, that's why they often mistreated people. And James is going to indict and expose them for their error. And he's going to warn them of the consequences that were coming upon them for the wrongdoing that they were participating in. And let me just say this at the front side of this. It's very important, I think, at a moment like this to say that God and the word of God do not condemn wealth and do not condemn people for being rich or being wealthy. The Bible does not teach that it is wrong or sin to be an affluent person, to be wealthy, to be successful in any way. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 8 says that God gives people the power to create wealth. One of the spiritual gifts, one of the gifts of the Spirit, the Bible mentions, is the gift of giving, an actual supernatural spiritual gift. Let me just say something. If you don't have nothing to give, you can't have the gift of giving. Typically, the people who have the gift of giving a lot of times are those who God has blessed and endowed with a real ability maybe to generate wealth and they have excess and they understand a right perspective on money and they realize, God, you have blessed us so that we might help and minister to people in the world because we have the ability to be able to do that and to use our resources as a helpful tool in that way. Again, when we read the scriptures, we don't see wealth and godliness as mutually exclusive. In fact, we see many examples in the Bible of godly men who also were very wealthy. For example, we see Abraham, godly man, the father of faith, and yet very wealthy. Isaac and Jacob were both endowed with great wealth. Joseph, who loved the Lord, became a very wealthy individual. David and Solomon. When you come to the New Testament, there's Joseph of Arimathea. Again, these individuals who loved the Lord, they were godly and yet wealthy simultaneously. And the Bible, even in 1 Timothy 6, particularly gives instruction, as well in other places in the New Testament, specific instruction to those who were rich among the church indicating there would be the existence among the church of christians who were maybe poor christians who were kind of maybe in the middle and that there would be some believers who loved the lord and yet were wealthy among the body of christ and so instructions giving so let me just say being wealthy is not something that's wrong it doesn't mean you can't be spiritual it's not something you should even feel guilty about it's an important stewardship It's something that should be managed wisely and recognize that it's something that should have careful uh, management under God's direction of how you would utilize that. What God does condemn in the Bible, what God does challenge is a wrong attitude towards money or a wrong attitude towards obtaining and possessing wealth. It leads to things like pride or 
greediness or selfishness of how you would utilize that wealth or too much love for wealth or too much confidence in one's bank account or in one's resources. Again, 1 Timothy 6 addressing the value of contentment and a warning regarding money. Listen to what it says. It says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So again, we just see these warnings of the wrong attitude towards wealth. It doesn't say money is the root of evil. It says the love of of money the strong desire the driving need to always have to have more and more and more and again that can happen to somebody who's making twenty thousand dollars a year that, that that as a way it can happen to somebody who's making two hundred thousand dollars a year that you just you want more and it just drives you and it becomes the idolatrous thing in your life that that can begin to contaminate your heart attitude and your mindset towards things though the Bible warns against these things. So the rich and wealthy being addressed here in James chapter 5, clearly you can see from the description, love money more than God and people. And this is why they entered into these wrong practices. Particularly note in these verses here, first of all, their love of money caused them to become incredibly selfish and completely self-indulgent completely self-indulgent look at the end of verse 3 James as he's summarizing it up he says you have heaped up treasure in the last days so after having all they needed to already enjoy a very luxurious life as he describes here great garments and gold and silver he's going to mention in the verses down below how they lived on earth in pleasure and luxury even after all of that they were still then hoarding away all their excess resources to keep for themselves and to hang on to them instead of considering maybe that God might want those to use those surplus funds or excess resources after even living very well themselves to somehow help out another or do something for the kingdom of God. The reference there to the last days in verse 3 is sort of a reminder from James that time is short, that there's only so much time available. The last days is that inference to the fact that there's only so much time left. And so James ties these two together saying, listen, he's saying considering how much wealth these people had, He's trying to say there's only so much time left that they could actually spend it all in and there's not even enough time left for them to finish using the amount that they have that caused them to heap up so much excess. There were many among them in the poor working class that could have benefited from some of what they possessed and yet they just continue to hoard more away and hold on to it for themselves. In fact, in verses 2 and 3, he's describing specifically in detail how they loved wealth so much that they were trying to hold on to it in a way that it was actually wasting before it could even be utilized more than they needed. They had so much excess, it was corrupting. You see what he says there? Even in living in pleasure and luxury, he says in our verses there that they had so much gold and silver that it was just corroding. That is, they had so much gold and silver, they couldn't spend it fast enough before it actually started corroding the metal itself. They had so many luxurious garments and, you know, extensive wardrobes and so forth because they could afford to buy all this fancy designer clothing and so forth and, and the great amounts of it. He says, 
you have so many garments in your massive closets and major voices, you can't even wear them all before they're becoming moth-eaten. The bugs are just destroying them before you could even wear them all. And so he's pointing out this reality here again because of the reason, again, important to grasp the concept, that those among the, the working poor, and many of them, they were thankful to have one change of garments. Many of them only had one garment. Uh, they didn't even have an extra garment to change into. And so he's trying to say, look, here, your, your garments are being eaten by bugs. And, and these other people don't even have one extra garment to actually change into. So it's just a picture of their waste and their self-indulgence, how their money's corroding. And he's saying these things testify. They become a witness against you, he says in verse 3, of your wasteful self-indulgent living how they were heaping up treasure on earth and here was the problem as they were heaping up and amassing all these material and financial things they never prepared their soul for eternity they never considered the more important thing in their life and their wealth was actually what was blinding them to their spiritual condition it was actually the amassing of and the acquiring of and the constant maintaining of all that they had that actually was hindering their spiritual perspective and was blinding their eyes to their own personal conditions spiritually. Remember, it was Jesus himself who made this statement. He said, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said it's hard. It's a difficult thing when someone has affluence, extra, and so much. It's hard to recognize the deeper needs of our lives, the poverty of our soul, and the reality that we can't always depend upon our finances. He says it's hard when a person has all that available to them. So James warns here that they ought to wake up and grieve, he says, over their spiritual poverty. And over the reality that they're not ready to face God. That's why he says in the first verse there, we read it, you rich, he says, weep and howl. Look what he says, for your miseries that are coming upon you. James says, you don't recognize, you ought to be grieving over the judgment of God that's coming upon your life because as you've acquired all this stuff, you've never done anything to make any preparation for the condition of your soul or to be ready to face your maker one day, the riches they accumulated could do nothing to help them in the day of judgment that was coming. See, the reality is this. Unlike how in the culture, many times those who are wealthy or rich can, can use their resources to kind of buy people off or get access into something. And, and, and that's an easy thing that people do and it happens in society all the time. But here's the deal. You can't buy God. You can't pay God off. You can't just in the end say, well, what's it going to take to get access into, into there, Lord? Let me cut you a check. Let me help a charity out. What do you, want? you can't buy God off. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need our wealth. God owns everything on creation. And God's not going to be bought off. God can't be manipulated or worked like people can work a system. And they chose their riches over being right with God. And they chose living in luxury on this earth rather than living for the Lord and the more important things that mattered and being ready. And now James says, great miseries are about to come upon you. Great miseries eternally. Jesus in Luke 16 tells the story of a rich man who lived in luxury on earth. Uh, 
And Jesus said because he did not prepare for eternity, he ends up being tormented in the flames of Hades. You know, we look at these verses this morning and I think they give to us, if nothing else, a few lessons for all of us. First of all, that we have to be careful, all of us. Be careful in our attitude, in our value system, and our mindset towards money and riches, just generally. Because wealth and money and resources can indeed be, for all of us, to any degree, a stumbling block for our spiritual lives. You know, just the need to chase after a little something extra can very easily all of a sudden pull us away from reading our Bible or praying or attending church. And it's just, well, I mean, I would attend church, but I can make a little more money that day. Or, and all of a sudden, just in the subtlest ways, wealth and resources, the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, Jesus said they can choke out the spiritual life. And so we need to be careful in the management of our perspective towards money. We also had to be careful as well, I think, secondarily, any one of us of heaping up and hoarding up resources in the last days that we are living in again let me say this keeping things in balance should you work hard and provide for your family's needs absolutely that's your god-given responsibility should you work hard and pay your bills and manage your money right and 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 give unto the lord and to his work absolutely i think that's wise should you do what you can, maybe to save some money and to prepare and to be a good steward and all that? Absolutely. But when you've done all those things, if you have any excess and surplus, all things in balance, those should be the times where we say, okay, Lord, I have done all those things. I'm living okay. I'm, I'm comfortable. What would you have me do with the excess? Is there a purpose for this surplus? And how would you have me to manage that? Good thing to ask ourselves. Are we occupied in these last days? And I assure you, look at the round in the culture. Are we more occupied in these days in heaping up just things for ourselves and, and, and our living existence and our material? And are we more interested in heaping up stuff for ourselves? And is that what we're busily occupied doing? Or are we more interested in trying to help people in the world and reach people? You know, Jesus cautioned all of us not to lay up treasure for yourself on earth, but to store up treasure in heaven. And thirdly, let me say this before we move on. I think that we should have a burden in our hearts to pray for and to witness to wealthy people who are unsaved. You know, as Christians, again, we put a lot of emphasis on trying to reach the poor, help the poor, the poor work out for the less fortunate, what we can to reach them, help them. And, and we have this, and listen, that, that's a good burden. That's a scriptural burden. But the reality is, is Jesus said he came to preach to the poor. And typically in the gospels, the poor were always responding very easily to Jesus because they saw their need. Perhaps one class that everybody ignores is what about the people, the wealthy businessman, the affluent individuals who think that they're everything else, you know, their money, their life, their self-made, and, and they see no need of God in life and they are so blinded. And we don't feel a burden to reach them. Maybe we should. Maybe you're supposed to be a missionary in the business world. Maybe you're supposed to be more of an evangelist to people who have a lot. You know, we do tons of outreaches for those who are less fortunate. Maybe we need more outreach just for those who are wealthy. Some, I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking outside of my head because I'm not wealthy. I don't know. <laughs> but Jesus had a concern for them. And here we see that it was the wealthy that were in a very bad condition here. James also identifies as well how they then became cruel 
in their treatment of people. In verse 4, he now talks about how they were cheating others, using corrupt business practices to do what? Further enrich themselves. Look what James indicts them of. He says, indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back from them by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Seboah. So again, they were making their wealth off of the backs of their servants and slaves and employees in that ancient culture. What they were doing was manipulating the hard-working people, the laborers, by corrupt business practices to further enrich themselves. Now, to understand what he's talking about here in verse 4, it's important to understand. In that day, in the, the working class, people didn't get paid the way that we usually receive our compensation. You, know, you work all week long, and then come Friday or maybe every two weeks, you, you get your paycheck. And so you work for a week or two weeks, and then you get your biweekly paycheck or maybe once a month paycheck. In this culture, the way they operated was very different. The laborers in the fields were what we would, in a sense, kind of call per diem workers. That is, they got paid per day for the work they did that day. Typically, there was an arranged amount decided and agreed upon of what would be paid to the laborer for his full day of labor. And at the close of the day, they then received their payment and their compensation at the end of the day. It was an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. And if you wanted an honest day's pay, you need to get out there and do an honest day's work. And so there was this daily payment. And that daily wage, understand, was they received that money at the end of the day. Usually that daily wage for a day's work was usually just enough to then maybe go to the local market to buy some supplies and some food to then go home and supply a meal for your family to be sustained and to survive through another day. And then each day that process would just repeat itself. You would go out that next day. And if you didn't go out that next day, you weren't going to be able to provide dinner that night. And so you had an incentive and you would go out and you would work that day, working day by day, receiving payment at the end. So the laborer expected to receive their payment by the end of the day. They were in expectation and dependent upon that daily payment and to not receive payment, understand, it just didn't threaten your uh, you know, standard of living. It threatened your survival. If you were to get paid at the end of the day, you couldn't supply dinner for that night for your family to take care of them. So God even gave instruction regarding this. Leviticus 19.13 says this, You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Again, God said, pay them at the end of the day. Don't keep his wages back until the next morning even. Apparently, these wealthy landowners, we can tell from verse 4, were making up excuses why they couldn't pay their laborers and were withholding the compensation that was due to them for their work. James says here, the work or the labor was being done, but they, look at it, verse 4, were keeping back wages by fraud. The word fraud means deception by dishonesty, by lying, making up excuses. And think about this. Here they are withholding and cheating these hardworking day laborers after all the work that they do of the payment that's due them. And here, as we just read in the prior verses, they're heaping up excess 
hoarding up excess for themselves, extra that they can't even use because it's corroding so quick. And he says, here you are heaping up and you're cruelly withholding and robbing people who are workers of money. This violated the word of God and it transgressed the heart of God who cares about people. Again, Deuteronomy 24 addresses this. It says, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens in your land. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and he has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be a sin to you. So James rebukes them here for this violation, which was just cruel mistreatment of people. It was taking advantage of people to try and further enrich themselves by corrupt practices. And he warns them they're not getting away with it. He says at the end of verse 4 there, the cries of these reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. That term there is a term of reference to the Lord of hosts. The idea is the one who's in authority over all the angelic realm. And James is saying, listen, don't think you're getting away with it because the Lord sees what's going on and the Lord will hold you to account for it. And again, by way of application for our lives as believers, I think there's a few things we should consider in light of this. First of all, as believers, may we never, God help us, may we never be guilty in our lives of withholding compensation that is due to someone for work that they've done for us. Whether it's a repair person that comes and does work or a, somebody who does some work on our property or somebody who renders some service and then we're holding back money that is justly due to them or an employee that we should be paying if we operate a business and paying them properly. May we never as God's people be guilty of holding back resources, maybe even in regards to certain debts and obligations that we've created by financial decisions and perhaps we're holding back and withholding by fraud and not making proper payment in ways that we should. We shouldn't be doing that as God's people. We also need to be careful as God's people as well that if ever we mistreat someone and cheat them in some way and we think they're getting away with it to remember just like here, uh, the Lord sees that and he's going to hold us to account. And let me say on the other side of that, if you're here this morning and you are being taken advantage of or have been taken advantage of in some capacity, maybe your job, they've taken advantage of you in some way, cheated you somehow or some person, please know this this morning. The Lord knows about that. He knows about that. And he will hold them to account for that in his way. And I would say this to you, you're under the Lord's watchful eye. You just cry out to the Lord. You talk to the Lord about it like it says here and your cries will hear his ears and he'll take care of you. He'll find a way to make sure that he sufficiently takes care of you if you've been cruelly mistreated in some way like this. Well, notice also verse five, the ungodly rich also, as he says, are living in luxury and, and, and uh, you know, un, un, unnecessary, excessive indulgence. He says, you've lived in luxury on the earth in pleasure and luxury, you fatten your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Again, living primarily to just enjoy every form, James says, of luxury, pleasure, entertainment, whatever was available to indulge in. The constant pursuit of these rich in this passage here is it was just a pursuit of more extravagance it was always the nicer thing the next model what was better what was more because they could afford anything as you can tell by the wealth that they possessed they basically spent their life pursuing more extravagance 
more luxury what's nicer what's what what pleasure haven't we tried yet what vacation haven't we you know participated in yet what new thing haven't we bought yet and so it was just constant drive because they were able to afford it of living for the life of luxury and constant indulgence in that and let me just say again in balance there's nothing wrong with enjoying life that's not what i'm saying there's nothing wrong with if God's blessed you in balance and moderation, enjoying nice things or going nice places and, and so forth. First Timothy 6 tells us that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. It's right in the Bible there. God gives us richly at times to enjoy life. Nothing wrong with enjoying life. It's balance and moderation. The problem is when we become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And we go overboard to undo extremes where James here saw these people saw the excess of money as nothing other than just an avenue to further bless themselves more and just to serve themselves to a greater degree. He draws an image in the end of verse 5 of how they had fattened their hearts as in the day of slaughter. The picture there is of how someone like purposely fattens up an animal before the slaughter by doing what? Overfeeding it with way more than it needs. And that's the picture there, he says. Just like somebody purposely gives an animal way, way more than what it really needs to fatten it up before it's slaughtered, he says this is what it's like when someone falls into this situation where they waste their life in just self-indulgence and continuing to just do nothing other than think about it's more accumulation. Jesus said, beware of covetousness. He said in Luke 12, beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. And see, the tragedy is, and we've seen this, and some of us have maybe at times experienced this, usually the more self-serving a person becomes, whether it's due to money and wealth or to anything, typically the more self-serving a person becomes, just like an animal, like a selfish, fat pig, people become self-serving. And they, everything is about consuming what they want and their heart grows cold. And, and, and they really almost reduce themselves to an animalistic experience. And they just become miserable. And they typically begin to treat people in ways that are very cruel. That's what leads to verse 6. Look what he says. You've condemned. He says, you have murdered the just and he does not even resist you one translation renders that you've condemned and killed good people who had no power to defend themselves so these wealthy influential rich had become so hard-hearted they were even using their wealth and powerful positions to manipulate people those who were completely innocent working their fields at times they would cause them to be drugged to the courts and put to death and, and again how sad to realize as we read these things how money can make someone's heart become so cruel in this world but yet this is what the bible shows us of this wrong attitude and how wealth can just harden the heart to where again it causes someone to be so uncaring towards other people well from this, we see some of what the believers were enduring at that time. So James now turns the corner and he tries to give some encouragement to these suffering believers who were a part of the working poor class. And you'll notice the distinction where he keeps saying brethren. And that's why I think the first group are not believers because now he keeps saying brethren, 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 a family term of spiritual people in the family of God. 
So his tone is going to turn from a strong condemnation to uplifting words to encourage the suffering believer or the one being mistreated. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, Therefore be patient, brethren, undergoing these sufferings, until the coming of the Lord. So he encourages the suffering believer, the Christian maybe who's being mistreated in their life in some capacity in these ways or others. And he encourages the suffering believer by saying, be patient. He's saying, in essence, you hang in there. You keep enduring. You keep doing what's right. Don't lose heart, he says. Keep enduring until the coming of the Lord. What he's trying to remind them is, is listen, any hardship in this life, any suffering we go through, any mistreatment or hard things that happen, he's trying to say, listen, it doesn't last permanently. There's a finish line. There's a closing there's a blowing whistle at the end of this race that we're running, the end of this competition we're fighting the battle. And he says, listen, this has an end, the coming of the Lord. Because he says the coming of the Lord is that day of rescue and release for the believer from all suffering and all wrong. And he's trying to encourage the suffering believer, don't be overwhelmed by the hardships. Endure in them. Keep doing what's right. Be patient. Persevere. He says, look down the road because he says the Lord is coming and he's going to settle everything. He'll deal with every wrongdoer and he will reward his faithful servants. And James uses as an illustration here, watch how he does this, a farmer to encourage endurance. He says, verse 7, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. Now, I don't know, maybe some of you in this room have grown up farming. I didn't, but I've been around farms and we pastored out in Pennsylvania for a number of years there and Lancaster County and York County there. And you begin to recognize a few things are true about farmers. First of all, a farmer truly is, is a life that's lived by faith and patience. Every day that farmer has to get up and go out and work his fields for an extended period of time and he doesn't get paid at the end of the day. He doesn't get paid at the end of the week. Quite frankly, they don't even get paid at the end of the month. They keep working and doing what's right and patiently, faithfully enduring day by day, doing what's good, doing what's right, patiently waiting, even the things that are outside of their control. They can't control when the former and the latter rains come. They can't cause the ground to produce. So they have to, in faith, trust God for what's outside of their control. And everything the farmer does is with a focus on the harvest day because that's when his payment comes. So he labors day after day, week after week, month after month, doing what's right, trusting God for what he can't control. And everything he's doing in his mind is there's a harvest that's coming. One day there's a harvest day. And when the harvest day comes, that's when the farmer receives his reward for what he's done. And James is trying to say here, this is a picture for us spiritually. As we serve the Lord in his fields here on this earth, there is a spiritual harvest day. That's the day that Jesus comes and he rewards his faithful servants. And the application is that like the farmer, we must patiently labor. That's why James says, verse eight, you also, just like that farmer, he says, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. See, just like a spiritual farmer, we need to do the same every day. 
We need to keep walking with Jesus, doing what's right, serving the Lord in the fields that He's put us in here on this earth, sowing good seed, plowing up the ground, doing what's right, being faithful day after day, being consistent and continuing to trust, Lord, I can't control the results. I can't control what's going to happen. But faithfully and patiently just continuing to do what's right and do what's good and knowing in faith that there's a spiritual harvest day that's going to come. And knowing that, that this is what we're serving for. That we don't do what we do in honoring Jesus or serving the Lord or pouring our life into things expecting an immediate gratification. But realizing that what we do is not for immediate gratification or immediate recognition, but for an eternal reward. So he says, like that farmer, be patient, he says. The coming of the Lord, James says, is at hand. He adds at hand, meaning it's near. It's something that's quickly coming. He speaks of the Lord's coming as what should stimulate us and sustain us to keep going. Interesting, all the New Testament writers encourage us to be ready for the imminent return of Jesus. And the imminent return of Jesus means that Jesus could come at any hour. And as we look at our world and the signs of our times, I don't understand how the Lord can wait a whole lot longer. I don't understand how He can last a whole longer before the harvest day when He returns. And I'll tell you something. You know, I've played sports and you watch sports. There's something very comforting and inspiring when you know that a race or a competition or a fight is almost over. And you maybe you can watch the clock and you see it ticking down and you're tired and you're weary and you're exhausted, but you realize, look, look it's, it's almost done. It's almost done. And there's something about that when you have the recognition that that final whistle is going to blow where you can push a little bit harder one more time because you know it's not going to last forever. And Jesus says to us in Revelation 22, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. Of course, Galatians 6, 9, again, great encouragement. It says this, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You notice Paul said, let us not grow weary. He included himself in that because everybody gets weary sometimes. It's not easy doing good. And I'll tell you, it's not easy doing good in a world that's getting really, 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 really bad to continue to keep doing good, to continue to keep serving the Lord and honoring Him. And notice from verse 7 too, the fruit of doing things right. I love how he calls it in verse 7. He calls it the precious fruit. That farmer's waiting for the precious fruit that's going to come. And can I just say for this morning for you and I, if you're here today, listen, and you feel weary in your efforts of serving the Lord or doing what's right and trying to honor the Lord and you feel it's worthless or in vain and and coming weary in it today, let us regain the perspective that we are like spiritual farmers. This is what we are. We're spiritual farmers. We have to patiently endure and wait for the coming harvest and serve and do what's right faithfully. And and what James is reminding us of, there is a really worthwhile fruit that's going to come someday. He says it's precious fruit. It's the kind of fruit that's precious. It's worth waiting for. 
Listen, maybe you're a weary and you're a tired parent. You're pouring into your kids. You're pouring into your kids. You're trying to do things in a way to raise them in the Lord. And, and, and you're wondering, is anything coming out of this? Listen, I assure you, at a certain point when you start to see that fruit bloom in their life, and you see them loving Jesus and walking with Jesus, and you see them starting to make decisions to honor the Lord that you had nothing to do with, other than that you sowed seeds and you invested in their lives and you begin to realize that the Spirit of God is working in their life and they're reading the Bible and it's becoming real for them. Listen, whatever it may be, the fruit comes and it is fruit worth waiting for. If you're trying to maintain your purity or do what's right and make sure you don't marry into something that you shouldn't, listen, there's fruit that's worth waiting for. You make those right choices. You do those good things. There's worthwhile, precious fruit. It's precious fruit. And it comes in its time if we wait for it and we endure for it, continuing to do what's right. He says, verse 9, And don't grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And I think James here is giving just a brief encouragement or maybe perhaps a bit of a challenge to those of us at times as believers when we start to suffer. He says, be careful in the midst of their suffering, their impatience and irritability sometimes like us. Maybe was making them start to bite and devour one another. So he says, don't start to grumble against one another because you're being mistreated by someone else. And boy, is it not true, if we're honest, that sometimes when we're suffering and in weariness, we start to turn against one another to release stress. All of a sudden, you know, you, your spouse becomes your enemy because you're under so much stress or maybe you're suffering through something and the people who are most important and precious in your life, you start attacking those people. And James is saying, whoa, whoa don't do this. Again, using the analogy of farmers, farmers understand the value of neighbors. Most working farmers, they don't fight with their neighbors because they realize we need our neighbors to all survive. And they depend upon their neighbors. So any farmer that's busy working and occupied has too much work to do and too many obstacles. They don't have time or energy for worthless disputes with their neighbors. They think that would be foolish and counterproductive because they realize, I need my neighbor. My neighbor is someone important to me. They're the one who helps me and supports me. And in the same way, we have to maintain that mindset as God's people. Look, we need our family. We need the family of God. We need to function in a way where we guard against letting our suffering and stress make us start to bite and devour the most important people in our lives. But sometimes we're guilty of that. And James says, be careful. The judge is at the door. You don't want to be found guilty of fighting with one another when you should be faithfully occupied doing what's right. A question to ask yourself this morning, in the midst of your struggle and suffering, have you maybe in your life turned against those who are the most important people in your life? And you're devouring and biting and grumbling with them rather than leaning on them as the one who's there to help you and support you? The Bible tells us in Galatians 6 too that we should be bearing one of those burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ. James then says, My brethren, take also the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience so lest we become discouraged James says read through your Old Testament think of all the prophets he says think of he says Isaiah and Moses and Daniel and Elijah 
Think of these prophets of God, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, who were faithful servants of the Lord, and they spoke in the name of the Lord, and they obeyed God's calling. They did what was right. They were seeking to please the Lord and not men. And as a result of that, what did they experience? Suffering. They were suffering from doing what was right. They were dealing with hardships. He says, take their example to encourage yourself to be patient in the midst of your suffering. Sometimes we may do what's right in serving the Lord. Maybe you make a decision that you knew was the right decision to honor the Lord. Or maybe you speak in the name of the Lord. And because you speak in the name of the Lord like the prophets, you endure hardship or persecution. This is a part of serving the Lord. But listen, the Lord takes note and you will be rewarded. You'll be rewarded. Jesus speaks of that in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. Be faithful to the Lord. The reward will ultimately come. And then James leaves us with his final example in verse 11. We count them blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job. If you haven't, there's a whole book on the Bible about it. And seeing the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So he concludes by giving us an encouragement to remember probably one of the greatest examples of human suffering we have in the Bible and probably in human history, Job himself. And he says, of someone who endured, consider Job's life and personal suffering as a man and recall his experience and what came out as a result of it. And as we think of Job's experience, here he was, the Bible says he was a godly man, blameless and upright, a faithful servant of the Lord, so much so that God is bragging about his servant and Satan comes along and indicates to God, if you just let me have a little access into his life, if he just suffers little, this God will curse you and this guy will curse you and, and, and he'll turn away from you. He's just a mercenary because you blessed him so much. So God sovereignly allows a measure of access to Job's life to be tested and Satan comes into his life and all of a sudden, horrible suffering, horrible suffering lost to a great degree. I mean, in a matter of a few days, he loses his business, his wealth. He loses all of his children. He loses his physical health. No fault of his own. No explanation of the painful trials. His own wife stops supporting him. And instead she says, you ought to just curse God and die. Then his friends come along. They sit quiet for a day or two. They were doing good, but then they had to say something. And they start saying, maybe there's sin in your life. Maybe there's a problem with you. And here Job going through all these things, wrestling with the questions and the confusion like we all do, the why. But in the midst of all the suffering, it says that Job never curses God wrongly. He just keeps trusting the Lord. In fact, he makes that statement, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And as Job honors God in the midst of his trial, he's never told the reason why he suffers but he honors the Lord as he endures and perseveres. And two things happen as a result of that. First of all, at the end of a hard season, the Lord blessed him way more in the latter days of his life than the beginning days of his life. So all the hardship and all the loss, it wasn't in vain. God blessed him in the latter days of his life way more than in the beginning days of his life because he honored the Lord and was faithful to him through the hardship and the pain and the suffering. He ended up way more blessed on the back end. And the other thing that Job learned is that he says that the Lord, verse 11, is very compassionate and merciful. And through Job's experiences, no other way he could have learned it, he learned in the midst of his hardships, man, 
in the hardest hours, the Lord is so compassionate to us. He's so merciful to help us and to be with us and to carry us through those things. And let me say this morning, God has not changed. He loves you just as much as he loves Job. And those experiences can be yours as well. Honor the Lord in the hardships. He'll take care of you. And let yourself discover things about the Lord in the hardships that will blow your mind of his compassion and mercy and love that you would never know if you didn't go through the fiery furnace that we all sometimes do. Let's stand together. We'll pray.